You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. We absolutely support Israel's right to defend itself in line with international law. We need to safeguard financial stability. 2024 is not going to be an easy year. We used to call it the dream of home ownership. But look at Britain now. We've got to hang on to optimism and hope because it is the biggest driver of change. Let's stop thinking of life in terms of Brexit. Let's move on and look for the future. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Now, do not adjust your podcast feeds. It is the 18th of January, but it does feel a little bit like the 7th of December, because that is the last time that we had another hastily arranged press conference from the Prime Minister to do with his Rwanda deportation plan. The Stop the Boats podium was wheeled out <laughs> in Downing Street yet again this morning. It did feel a little bit different, this press conference. It was, of course, after the Prime Minister did manage to get the bill passed through Parliament last night with a smaller rebellion than we had been talking about. Mm. Only 11 MPs in the end from his party voted against it. Uh, the Prime Minister not in the same tetchy form he was the last no. time he held this press conference mm. In December? Indeed. Lots of red, white and blue and lots of messaging, you know, that we are getting the plan done. Stick with us. It will be much worse if you vote in Labour. Very determined. He took a lot of questions, though, not just on the Rwanda bill, also on Yemen, uh, also on the state of the economy, inflation, many, um, many issues. But here's firstly what he had to say on that Rwanda bill that did get through the Commons yesterday. Now, obviously, progress on the boats is there but we need to go further but like my main message is the plan is working right across the board you can see the progress is being made and our job is to stick to that plan deliver for the country and the alternative as i said is clear you know keir starmer has had four years to set out an alternative and he hasn't done so so very calm very measured repeating that line really over and over again and answered mm. almost all of the questions in that press conference that this is the plan the plan is working continue with the plan uh, a not so subtle message to the House of Lords that they shouldn't get in the way of this bill advancing as that's the next stage of the legislative process yeah but it's been immensely costly I mean you know politically uh, the Rwanda uh, bill very uh, difficult but it's also in and of itself been an expensive scheme already I thought to have cost 140 million pounds to date yeah, and certainly a question also of how much other legislative time energy is being expended on this particular policy. Let's bring in our political editor, Kitty Donaldson, who was at the press conference in Westminster. Um, listening to the Prime Minister's words, as we did, Kitty, I mean, the, the plan seems to be to say plan as many times as possible. What did you take away from what we heard from Rishi Sunak? Yeah, you're absolutely right. There was a kind of deliberate non-touchiness. He's been accused of being touchy in the past, but today he was very calm, very measured, very kind of, um, I'm in control here. And actually, all things considered, he, he didn't have a bad night last night. He 
only 11 rebels in the end uh, voted against the, the bill. The bill is through. And now he's appealing to the House of Lords, the upper House of Lords, to um, speed it through as quickly as possible. Uh, whether that will happen, of course, is, is, is a separate question. Yeah, and he was asked, you know, when will flights to Rwanda actually take off and would he commit to that? Yeah, um, so I've been doing a bit of counting of months on my fingers this morning, and this is a very rough guide, um, talking to people in the House of Lords and talking to lawyers and legal experts. So this is how it could play out. Uh, say it goes back to the Lords in the next week or so. Um, the Lords could take up to, well, let's start at the beginning, they could take up to a year if they wanted to, but that's quite unlikely to happen. And the reason that's unlikely to happen is because um, Labour in the House of Lords have a convention where they say, we we don't, as a bloc, vote against what MPs have passed in the House of Commons because of the primacy of the Commons. And that's kind of crucial to this point, because even though the Tories don't have a majority in the House of Lords, without the support of Labour on the opposition benches, it won't be brought down. So what's, what the focus will turn to is the cross-bench peers, and that means people who aren't affiliated to any party, um, and also the bishops and um, the... Uh, they're called Lord Spiritual. Um, it means that the, oh the, the religious, le- yeah, the, the religious leaders in the Lords, as opposed to the Lords Temporal, which are the kind of um, your commonal garden peer, if I can put it that way. Um, and so they will have lots of fights. And Alex Carlyle, mm. who is um, a, a crossbencher himself, and he's a he's a barrister, um, and he's been the former he's the former independent reviewer of the government terrorism legislation. He's a very sort of senior law lord, uh, sorry, crossbench here. He he said um, this morning that that his sort of caucus, if I can put it like that, will, will come up with lots and lots of amendments and that will slow up the passage of the bill in the House of Lords. But ultimately, the, the bill could, could pass the Lords within about eight to ten weeks, um, which takes us, I think, to about March. And then after March, I suspect you'll get lots of um, individual cases. So if, it, if an, uh, um, uh, an asylum seeker uh, will appeal um, on an individual basis, and then presumably all the charities will turn around and start maybe do a kind of group action um, mm. to judicially review what the government's uh, passed. And that's just kind of the point that, that some people were making in the Commons yesterday, people like Robert Jenrick and Sarah Braverman, saying that the government has not let itself has not built itself a kind of watertight uh, bill, basically. There are still holes in it that can be challenged through the courts. Um, Rishi Sunak's counter-argument was he'd gone as far as he could without making it illegal in international law and also not making it so that the Rwandans would pull out because the Rwandans don't want to break international law. So we get to the point, say, I, I don't know, um, so say, just say that the, the bill passes through the laws by March you could get to the point where you're in May, early June, perhaps, when some of the legal challenges have been frustrated. Perhaps you get to a point where, where if the government, you know, with a fair wind behind it, gets what it wants, and you get to a point where, where a, a plane takes off in, in the early summer. I mean, this is all kind of guesswork at the moment because we won't know until how many amendments get put down and so forth and, mm. and what the temperature's like in the Lords. But Sunak might have had, you know, he might get what he wants. And if we're looking at election in, I think, probably late, late October, middle of November, then he's got a kind of maybe two or three months, maybe even, you know, four before to, to get a, 
maybe even a couple of planes in the air with some some passengers on it, which is basically what they want. They want one person, one plane, just yeah. to take off from Heathrow, basically. But and then they can say, look, we've done it. Given so much of that process will essentially, once it's kind of through the legislative part, will be out of the Prime Minister's hands and he can say, well, you know, the, the, plans, the plan's continuing, as he was saying this morning. Does this go away as a problem for Rishi Sunak? Does he get, get to claim victory and say, well, he did what he promised to do? And, and does that reunite the Tory party that's been fractured again over this issue? I don't think it goes away because it's one of his key pledges and it also he's going to have to battle in the Lords. But it's kind of easier to bash the Lords than it is to bash the House of Commons. Um, it's quite interesting, actually, The just in the last 10 minutes, the official statistics watchdog has criticised Rishi Sunak, the claim that he's cleared the country's asylum backlog. Um, so he said on Twitter, um, asylum backlog cleared, and um, Robert, Chope, who's, um, Robert Chote, who's the chair of the statistics authority has said actually the public may have been misled by that claim so Mm. there's still a lot of fighting to be done there certainly is uh and indeed you know the reports of letters of no confidence being submitted in the wake um of the bill lots more hurdles it would seem for Rishi Sunak when it comes to the Rwanda policy. Kitty, thank you so much for explaining. I think I understand the timeline with your help quite a lot better uh, than I did before speaking to you. Kitty Donaldson is Bloomberg's political editor. While Rishi Sunak has been tied up with those issues at home, there's a familiar face handling the country's foreign policy. Foreign Secretary and former Prime Minister David Cameron has been uh, discussing the issues ongoing in the Middle East, as well as ongoing support for Ukraine while attending the World Economic Forum in Davos. He spoke to our colleagues on Bloomberg Television. They started the conversation about the uh, latest tensions in the Middle East and how the Houthi rebels have managed to cause so much disruption in the Red Sea. Well, they're doing it because uh, they're backed by Iran and they've had weapons provided to them to Iran. And, you know, between the 19th of November and last weekend, they'd made 26 attacks. We'd given warning after warning, but we hadn't taken action. We have now taken action. We've demonstrated we're prepared to back our words and warnings with actions. And I believe that will make a difference. You were part of the strikes that took place more recently with the United States. You remember about 10 years ago that you had to shove strikes in Syria because of a vote in Parliament. Just as a principle, is that something you think should be happening when the UK takes military decisions? I think if you're taking um, urgent and immediate action, um, I think it's perfectly acceptable for the government to act. And Of course, you've got to weigh up the operational security uh, with consulting Parliament. But the warnings were given in Parliament. Parliamentarians were perfectly aware of what could well happen. And now there's been a statement in Parliament, and that's in- entirely right. Of course, there was the situation with Syria uh, many years ago. I'd point also, we have taken action with Americans and others to get rid of the uh, ISIL threat that was there in Syria and Iraq, and that was a very successful uh, intervention. But clearly, look, this is about freedom of navigation. Uh, We want to have the freedom of navigation. It's vital not just for our economy, but for every economy in the world, including some of the poorest countries. And you can't have a situation... Including China, just to jump in. And it's interesting to me that this could have huge consequences for trade in China. 
and yet China's not a part of what took place in the last week. No, Why aren't they getting involved? Well, China did sign up to the UN Security Council resolution that condemned the Houthi attacks and said that nations had a right to self-defense. And so I think that is progress. But yes, if you're asking, is Britain a country that is prepared to stand up and work with allies and take action if we have the capabilities and if we can help? Yes, we are, because we think it's important that you don't always leave America to act alone. Will the conflict continue in the Red Sea until there's a ceasefire in Gaza? Well, obviously, you've got to look at all of these different things that are happening uh, in the Middle East. And I think the important thing is to try and deal with each of them. I don't think it was possible to go on allowing these attacks to continue in the Red Sea. But at the same time, yes, of course we want to work towards um, a, a, a resolution of the situation in Gaza. I've been very clear that should involve an immediate humanitarian pause. We need to get aid in. We need to get hostile out that requires a pause and of course we've talked about a sustainable ceasefire because you've got to get rid of Hamas and its ability to rain down terror on Israel but the best outcome would be moving from that pause to a sustainable ceasefire without a return to hostilities without more uh, destruction but for that to happen a number of things would have to take place. We'd have to see the Hamas leadership come out of uh, Gaza. You'd have to see the hostage situation being resolved and resolved very rapidly. Uh, you'd have to make sure that Hamas was no longer capable of doing rocket and terrorist attacks onto Israel. You'd have to start working out who's going to govern Gaza and how, a new Palestinian authority. So, but I think that should be the ambition. That should be the plan moving from an immediate cessation uh, to deal with hostages, uh, which is a pause, and moving from that into a sustainable ceasefire. Whether it's Hamas, whether it's Hez uh, uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, whether it's Houthis, all of these roads lead to Tehran. Where is going to be the Western response to Iran? Well, we have delivered very tough messages to Iran, including I had a discussion with the foreign minister uh, last week. And obviously there's a number of sanctions and other measures already in place. But I think it's absolutely vital that we send a very clear and unequivocal message to Iran that its behavior in supporting these proxies, whether it's Hamas or Hezbollah or indeed the Iranian armed groups in, in Iraq and Syria, its behavior is unacceptable and we need to make sure that there will be consequences for this behavior in terms of sanctions. But as clear say actually striking a leadership like Qasem Soleimani? No, I, look, I think what we need to look at is all the tools that we have in the toolbox. And obviously we have been using, for instance, sanctions against a number of people uh, in Iran and we need to look at how we can step that up if this behavior continues. There's a real question here as the leadership, and you're saying that there needs to be pretty strong measures taken, this needs to get resolved, etc. And then you see protests flooding the streets of London with all these people coming out to support Hamas, to support, uh, yes, the Palestinian people, but also to really protest some of these actions. How does that complicate your job if you're losing a lot of the popular support. Well, I wouldn't. Look, these protests, look, a lot of people feel very strongly about what's happening in, in Gaza. I completely understand that because we have seen a, a huge loss of life. We've seen a lot of destruction. Uh, I support Israel's right to act in self-defense. I understand why they have to get rid of Hamas, but we all want to see fewer civilian casualties, less destruction. As I've said, I think there is a pathway uh, to try and, and deal with this. We have a right to protest in our country. People are free to come out onto the streets and make the uh, views known, but we have to work out what's the right thing to do to bring this to a conclusion. So it's often tempting in foreign policy to say the easy thing, let's just have a ceasefire that's comprehensive right now, but it won't work unless you deal with the problem of Hamas. And actually the thing that so many of those protesters want, which I want, 
which is a two-state solution where you have Israel yeah. and Palestine side by side. You'll never get that if Hamas are still in Gaza launching rockets capable of carrying out terrorist attacks. A two-state solution requires the bringing to, end of, bringing to the end of that situation. I know you have to go. I want to squeeze in another question. Don't let me down because I always say that British politicians have much thicker skin than American politicians do. <laughs> so forgive the bluntness of this question. There is a 20-point gap between the Conservative Party and Labour. If we were to have an election right now, polls indicate your party would get absolutely trounced. What do you think is behind that? Do you think it's poor policy preferences or incompetence? I, I remember sitting probably in a chair like this in 2013, 14, when I was Prime Minister. We were way behind in the polls. Everyone had written us off. They were saying, you know, start, start thinking about packing your bags. And we won that 2015 election. And we won it because we had a strong team with a clear plan. And that's what we've got now. We've got a very capable Prime Minister with a very strong team and a clear plan on how you deal with everything from illegal migration to growing the economy to sorting out some of these problems in terms of international security we've been discussing about. I didn't just come back into this government to uh, come to great foreign gatherings like this and talk about foreign affairs, vital though that is. I came back as a full member of the team because I really believe in this team. Well, that's the Foreign Secretary David Cameron speaking to Bloomberg in Davos. Now, the Shadow Chancellor, Rachel Reeves, has also been rubbing shoulders with the rich and powerful at the World Economic Forum. Here's what she told Bloomberg about her party's message to business. If I'm here in Davos to say to business that with a Labour government, we would be not just open for business, but actively encouraging investment and wealth creation in Britain and making the argument that Labour today are the party of wealth creation and we wouldn't do anything with tax to deter that investment. Now, we brought you that full conversation on the UK Politics podcast yesterday, but we wanted to dig into that commentary there with Len McCluskey, who's the former General Secretary of the United Trade Union, joins us in the studio. Len, great to have you on the programme. The Party of Wealth Creation, it's a new moniker for the Labour Party. Your union, Unite, doesn't seem very happy with some of what Rachel Reeves has been saying in Davos. What do you think? Well, obviously, the question of wealth creation is important to all of us. Uh, you know, there's no doubt that economic growth brings wealth. And obviously, then the debate and the discussion is how is that wealth distributed? How is it shared out? Um, my uh, union, uh, when I was general secretary, and indeed the whole of the trade union movement, uh, demands that the wealth should be evenly uh, split with work. It's fairly dealt with the distribution of that wealth. The terminology wealth creation, and we're very business friendly, well, that's typical of the current Labour Party leadership. Um, do I find that offensive? Not particularly. The reality is that, of course, we want economic growth. Of course, we want investment. Of course, we want to deal with good employers. The key for the current uh, Labour Party is what are they going to do then with that wealth? How are they going to distribute it? So terminologies, Rachel's over in Davros, of course, she's going to try and pitch uh, that people, the establishment, the business community have nothing to fear from um, the Labour Party in government. Uh, I can understand that message. And it's probably true, given the fact that uh, it appears that uh, Keir Starmer and his team are not really going to challenge the balance of power. 
the Labour Party exists in order to bring about an irreversible shift in the balance of power in favour of working people. And at the moment, that really is the missing piece from uh, from the Labour Party. Yeah, and indeed, you know, a, a colleague in um, leading a union, Sharon Graham, has made that point, um, that it's becoming clear that state intervention and investment is needed to achieve all of these things like, um, you know, growth uh, uh, in the national interest, in her words. So she's sort of pointing out that Rachel Reeves has been moving further away from this position at Davos. So also highly, really quite highly critical. So you you have no issue with Rachel Reeves and maybe Jonathan Reddles going to Davos, but it's about the redistribution piece that is entirely missing, you still think? Or is that still to come from the Labour manifesto? Well, it's clearly missing. And uh, uh, Sharon is absolutely right in what she said. It's missing. It's very important elements of the Labour Party. Whether it appears in the manifesto is questionable because obviously Keir was elected on 10 points, which were regarded as quite radical uh, points. Uh, he's um, reneged on all of those 10 points. Now, talking about Rachel Reeves' uh, speech in 2021, it was a very impressive speech about the um, uh, the Green New Deal and the amount £28 billion a year that was going to be ploughed into it. They've turned, they've done a U-turn on that. And so at the moment, there's a question of credibility in lots of people's minds, and certainly the trade unions, about how are they going to implement their policies, create economic growth in favour of working people. And that's what's missing. Is that different from previous times? I'm thinking 1997 when the Labour Party was about to take power, that, you know, what what Tony Blair did to bring the party to government. Is this a different turn for the Labour Party compared to what we've seen at this pre-government, government-in-waiting stage of the polls are to be believed? No, I think in many respects it's um, <clears throat> it's a regurgitation of what happened under Blair. Uh, and remember, in 1997, fantastic victory um, <clears throat> and new Labour, as it was then deemed, uh, brought in lots of good changes in civil society. However, at the end of 13 years, uh, inequality had grown. The gap between rich and poor was wider than ever. There were 13 million people of our citizens living uh, beneath the poverty line, 4 million of our kids going to school hungry. And what Blair failed to do was challenge the establishment and bring about this shift in the balance of power. And that's exactly where we are with Keir Starmer. And yet the establishment, as you say, and the unions and everybody is facing a huge new challenge. I mean, I note that you've been looking back at your life with an autobiography always read. You've also edited a poetry collection with Jeremy Corbyn, of course, the former Labour leader. So perhaps on that note, you know, we're standing perhaps on the cusp of another enormous revolution, artificial intelligence. We've heard so much about it from Davos. <coughs> that you know, potentially is going to have an enormous impact on people, on industries. Are you hopeful? Are you worried? What do you think it will mean for well, Caroline? You, I am. I am deeply, deeply worried. When I was general secretary, we commissioned a lot of work, and it is astonishing what is being predicted 
uh, a few years ago, the prediction was that by 2030, 35% of jobs in Europe uh, may have vanished and 45% of jobs in the States. It is catastrophic unless governments do something about it. Now, unfortunately, um, I look at our present government, of course, who seem utterly incompetent to do anything, uh, but I look at a possible future Labour government and I'm not full of optimism that they can tackle it. I don't see anything happening within uh, Europe to give me a feeling that at least people have identified methods of um, of improving the situation and guarding against it. It's a, a huge, huge challenge. Back in uh, uh, back in 2017, Jeremy Corbyn, of course, and John Macdonald put forward views. They've seen the problem. John talked about a four-day week and, of course, was immediately ridiculed by the media. But the truth of the matter is it's only governments who can deal with... Because the other thing that AI will bring is massive increase in wealth and profits, enormous increases. So the the figures are mind-boggling. And so what do you do with that enhanced um, profits? What do you do with that enhanced wealth? That really is an issue that uh, faces all of us in a very serious manner because it could lead, if it's not dealt with, uh, you could un- undoubtedly have civil unrest on a scale that we perhaps haven't seen before. I hear you say you're not optimistic about the Labour Party's ability to, to handle that particular challenge. I wonder more broadly, though, are you optimistic about Keir Starmer being a good Prime Minister if he wins the next election? Not particularly. I mean, uh, um, I just mentioned my autobiography and obviously I reveal in there that um, uh, I fell out with Keir. I I don't trust him. I cut a deal with him when he suspended Jeremy Corbyn. I cut a deal and he reneged on that deal. And as a negotiator for 50-odd years, when anybody does that, you, you lose trust. I think the problem we've got with Keir at the moment is that he's not putting forward a vision. Um, of what he can and what Labour can bring uh, to ordinary working people. Uh, I believe there's every likelihood that he will be elected because, of course, um, this government are incredibly incompetent. I can't believe how incompetent they are. I mean, these are people that were told uh, were born to lead. They're brought up through their public schools to uh, expect to be leaders. And do do you think that vision will come from the Labour Party, though, as we get closer to the election? Because the, the thinking is, is they don't want to I, show I their hand that. too quickly. Yeah, I understand that. You don't want to expose yourself. And, of course, there's always hope. But there is a, um, there, there is a saying at the moment that people are, uh, are using that um, it's not a done deal. It's not a done deal that Labour will automatically win the next election. There is serious concern about a low turnout, about apathy, and anything can happen in those circumstances. And so I do believe that Kia and uh, the Labour Party need to put forward a radical vision. It, it, isn't, it isn't rocket science. You, you simply need to say to ordinary working people, we're on your side. And you've got to do it in a way that they believe you 
at the moment, so many people that I speak to uh, effectively say, well, we don't know what Labour stands for. We don't know what Stormer stands for. And that is a danger if they think they're just going to walk into an election on, on the basis um, that... They, they'll win because the Tories are, are so useless. I is think there that's an dangerous. Ally, is there an ally for, as you see it, you know, the union movement on the front bench of the Labour Party currently? Anybody who would you pick out as the most closely aligned? Oh well, I mean that's probably unfair. If I was to name names, it mightn't do them much good at all. <laughs> I mean, you know, Starmer at the moment is engaged in uh, a war within the Labour Party. The, my wing that I've been—I've been a member of the Labour Party now for fifty-four years—and my wing of the party, the left, is under constant attack from Starmer. Uh, 250,000 of our members have left the Labour Party. There are literally dozens and dozens of councillors suspended, MPs suspended. Will that matter as much if he wins the election? Well, that's uh, the reality is no. Everybody loves a winner. And so if he wins, all the people who've been advising him, and I've no doubt they're telling him that now, will be saying, look, you were doing the right thing. But Labour have always been good at elections on the ground war. Uh, We've always won the ground war because we've always had tens of thousands of people. A quarter of a million have left the party. They won't be on the streets anymore. And so I fear where we are. And uh, I'm just hoping, of course, that uh, uh, somehow a radical vision will come forward, that ordinary working people can say, yeah, you know what, I trust this guy and um, uh, I'm going... All all Labour... I mean, if you look at Tony Blair, you mentioned, everybody knew he had a vision. Mm. Uh, It was an Mm. issue that I particularly uh, didn't agree with, but at least he had a vision and he put forward clear policies. So did Corbyn. Everybody knew Corbyn had a vision and he put uh, clear policies forward. Kia has to do that. Otherwise, well, you know, strange things can happen. A very difficult moment, I think, for voters in that case, isn't it, this year with a general um, election at such a difficult time. If there is so little vision out there when the UK faces such significant economic challenges still. Len McCluskey, thank you so much for joining us here on Bloomberg Radio, the former General Secretary of the Unite Trade Union. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Tiwa Adebayo. Our audio engineer was Marufa Hussain. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Hi everyone, I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.